This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? You know you do. And that is The Jordan Harbinger Show, a top-notch podcast named Best of Apple in 2018, and has only gotten better. Jordan goes deep with fascinating people, from authors and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. During his discussions, Jordan pulls out tactical bits of wisdom for you to use to become a more informed, critical thinker. You'll learn and have a good time. He's very easy to listen to. My two recent favorites are Episode 972, Mustafa Suleiman, The Coming Wave of Artificial Intelligence, and Episode 843, Ellie Honig, How the Rich Get Away with Crime. You can't go wrong adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast. Episode 358, The Saturday Night Club Run. As the hot days of summer passed by on Malta, only with hindsight would the British leaders eventually figure out that there would be no land invasion of Malta. But at the time, that threat seemed real. Yet the question was, how would it come? Would it be an airborne attack, like in the Netherlands? Or would it come from the sea? Or maybe a bit of both? How to guard against that? As the servicemen and local volunteers stationed themselves around the island as best they could, it was unfortunate that the British intelligence could not fathom the following. One, the Italians had no intention of being caught far away from port, and two, they did not have the transport craft needed for an invasion. And those numbers were dwindling, as we saw last time. Thus, the threat stayed real and had to be prepared for. Or perhaps two and two could have been put together. With the Germans gone and the Italians not having nearly enough paratroops, the threat of invasion was limited. Still, it is always wise counsel to be prepared. So, anti-parachute sections were created out of the Maltese police, who normally did not carry guns. That would have to change. As for the threat from the sea, we have already seen how British Commonwealth troops and local soldiers, in the form of artillery units, were placed around the coastline at strategic points. It was the best that could be done with the 90 miles of coastline. But should there come a seaborne invasion, the beaches were in readiness. Bobbed wire was strung up, mile markers were removed or made unreadable. The same went for direction signs. Some commercial cars and trucks even removed their addresses from the side of the vehicles. No use in helping the enemy. 
thus with the airborne threat dealt with, again, as much as possible, and a counter-seaborne threat plan drawn up, that left an old-fashioned naval bombardment from the sea, with no plans to invade. But between Malta's aircraft, ships, and subs, Admiral Cunningham believed they represented a strong enough deterrent to that. But getting back to the guarding of the coastline, yes, there were simply too many miles to cover, but what was under guard, the men on the beaches felt good about. According to Martin Cosmo Hastings, who had been stationed on Malta since 1938 and was a second lieutenant in the 2nd Battalion Devonshire Regiment, he and his unit, not to mention the young Maltese under him, were keen about defending the island. Before the war, it was just Martin and his battalion practicing over and over of defending their section of a beach. After the war was declared, he was put in charge of training the Maltese volunteers of the Royal Army Ordnance Corps. But best of all, in that capacity, he earned two extra shillings a day. Not bad for a young, destitute man who, like the rest of the world, needed all the cash he could get. And this young Martin would go on to have much contact with the enemy during the war. Yet, one of the things the British figured out relatively quickly was that Italy did not have an overall grand vision, now that they were in the war proper. Yes, Mussolini wanted his new Roman Empire, but wasn't sure about how to go about getting it. Moreover, as he himself was no strategist, and he could not completely trust any of his officers, this was a dictatorship, it became apparent to Rome, and Berlin, and London, that the Italians would be serving as backup to the Germans, who knew what they wanted, in what order their conquest would come, and how to go about achieving them. Which came as a relief to Cunningham, considering the Italians had the largest naval presence in the Mediterranean when the war broke out. At Mussolini's command were at least six battleships, seven heavy cruisers, and 14 light cruisers. Along with these heavy hitters were 122 destroyers and torpedo boats, and at least 119 submarines. But there was a catch to this mountain of naval firepower. The Italians had not been keeping up with the latest war technology, like radar. Cunningham would say of this subject, the Italians were no further advanced than we had been at Jutland 25 years before. Nor did the Italians focus on things like armor protection. Still, their ships were beautiful and fast, just relatively easily sinkable. Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. And like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity and another with Merrill, and I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination, with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. 
the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. To depart from the Malta story for a moment, though the island's story during the war would be affected by this, former Prime Minister Chamberlain's decisions and actions during the Munich Agreement may have upset many, like Churchill, but it did buy the various military branches more time. And around the home island in Europe, that time was well spent. While it's true that British manufacturers continued to build aircraft that they should not have, there was also the completion, before the war, of the chain home radar stations. Also, aircraft carriers and other warships were ordered. And the construction of armored aircraft carriers, already underway, were sped up. Unfortunately, this desire to ready themselves for a war that few wanted did not carry over to the defenses of Singapore and Malaya, and this would show itself soon enough when the Japanese entered the war. Then there were the AA guns around Malta, which would be connected to the radar, imperfect as it was. And together, these two items would make the Italian, and to a lesser extent German, air crews bleed over Malta. On a side note, at one point, and this was in 1940, the radar on Malta was ran by only nine people. But as war came to the island, those nine people started training up others with alacrity. To be sure, the Italians did draw up an invasion plan for Malta. To do otherwise would have been foolish in the extreme. But much like Hitler's Operation Sea Lion, the talked-about invasion of the British home island, Mussolini's plan, Operation C-3, seemed to be more of a threat than a reality. It called for 40,000 Italian troops to be moved by transports and barges, along with paratroopers, all covered by 500 fighters. As there would be a naval force as well, the plan called for Malta to be mostly subdued within 48 hours. After that, Admiral Cunningham could be expected to show up at any moment with his fleet from Alexandria. There would be landings to the north with a diversionary landing to the south. When the plan was first created, it was not a bluff. Mussolini wanted Malta, as did his admirals, and certainly the Germans. Hence, there were actual exercises carried out to ready the men. But then came Italy's entry into the war, and Churchill's subsequent victory in deciding that Malta would be defended to the last. With that done, Mussolini's bluff had been called. There would be no invasion. But that did not mean that there would not be bombings and attempts to destroy Allied shipping while in Grand Harbor. But zooming out, the Axis would find that the three big leaders were being pulled in different directions by the different branches. Mussolini mostly listened to the army. Hitler mostly listened to Goering and the Luftwaffe, and later Tojo would listen to the army over the navy, much to the empire's detriment. Alas, the question of whether to invade Malta would change when Field Marshal Albert Kesselring was made C&C South in November of 1941. As it was a big theater, he had numerous responsibilities. The Germans had already saved the Italians' reputation by helping them in the Balkans, and now they would be doing the same in North Africa. Ironically, Rommel, when he was put in charge of the Africa Corps, had also demanded that Malta be taken, 
But when he landed and he got closer to the Suez, the tiny island in the Mediterranean became less important to him. That was a mistake. And it would be Kesselring who would return to the subject of taking Malta soon enough. But getting back to the early fall of 1941, Admiral Cunningham, happy enough with what his subs and planes were doing, though there's always room for improvement, certainly during a war, was delighted to find out in October that he would be given a newly created formation, Force K. K would be made up of fast surface vessels, two cruisers, Aurora and Penelope, and two destroyers, Lance and Lively. This had been practically birthed by Churchill, who wanted a separate surface fleet to complement the work of Malta's based subs and planes. It would be based on Malta and commanded by Captain William Agnew. The announcement was made on Trafalgar Day, October 21st. But before Admiral Cunningham could finish rejoicing about Forrest K, he was given another bit of good news. Clearly, the war cabinet wanted to take advantage of the absence of German air power and cut off Rommel from his supplies. There was to be the equivalent of an RAF coastal command for the Mediterranean. It was designated 201 Naval Cooperation Group, but shortened to 201 Group. Within 201 Group, there were to be twin-engine light medium bombers and reconnaissance planes, and Cunningham knew their first job to gather information on the Axis positions around Tobruk, and then to resupply that beleaguered outpost, post-haste. Of course, the first thing Cunningham and Captain Agnew wanted to ask was, are we going to be getting more fuel? But they were told, be thankful for what you are about to receive. Besides, the ships should be fine for the first few weeks anyways, right? Yet, that did not take into account the heavy lifting Force K was about to perform. On November 7th, ultra-decrypted signals, combined with reconnaissance flights from Malta, this was the norm as the Allies would always want to have plausible deniability about reading Italian naval messages, found that another supply run was being made, this one from Naples to Tripoli. This was the perfect job for Force K, which set sail from Malta the next day, November 8th. The cruiser Aurora, Agnew's flagship, was in the lead of this line of ships. With a speed of 28 knots, or 32 miles an hour, Force K came upon the convoy just after midnight, now November 9th, about 155 miles or 250 kilometers east of Syracuse, which is located on the southeastern corner of Sicily. As there was slight moonlight, Agnew had his ships line up so the feeble moonlight would silhouette the approaching convoy. And what a convoy it was. At least seven merchantmen, two were tankers, with six destroyers acting as escorts. Technically, the Italians were calling the convoy Beta, but unofficially, it was the Duisburg Convoy, based on the convoy's largest ship. Duisburg is a town within the Crump Empire's rural area. Overall command of the convoy had been given to Admiral Bruno Brivonesi. Admiral Cunningham knew the Italians well, having mixed it up with them for a while now, and so ordered Agnew to fire on the closest escorts first, and then on the convoy, tempting as it may be. They would probably scatter and be that much easier to get out. As the German and Italian ships came closer, 
Force K slowed down to 20 knots, or 23 miles an hour. As this crew now belonged to Cunningham, he had been very specific. He said, once you start firing, keep firing. But accuracy is more important than the tonnage of expended shells. Just before the signal to fire was given, British radar detected other ships in the area, but further away. They were not British, so this ambush might turn out to be trickier than expected. The order to fire was sent at 12.47 a.m. The Italian cruiser Trieste picked up this signal and was about to tell all of her sister ships, but the destroyer Lively was already sending out a jamming signal. Whatever those ships were further away, they would have no idea of what was happening at first. Agnew could only hope that would remain the case. Having radar, something the Italians did not, the British opened fire at 12.58 a.m. and was using their radar to aim by. The results were predictable enough, however gruesome. Being only 5,200 yards away, but getting closer with each second, the cruiser Aurora's first three salvos hit the Italian destroyer Grecale. She was doomed. Meanwhile, the destroyer Lance and Aurora's four-inch guns tore into a nearby merchant ship. This vessel, too, was not long for this world. This left the other cruiser, Penelope, to fire on the Mastrale, the lead escort closest to the firing British vessel. Again, radar allowed the Penelope's first few shells to slam into the Italian destroyer, which allowed the Lively to begin attacking a nearby merchant ship. All this had happened in a matter of moments, but it was enough time for Captain Mario Milano, captain of the destroyer Fulmine, to come forward and offer up his destructive capabilities. But having done so, he got the attention of at least two of the British vessels. As they started targeting Captain Milano's ship, the captain himself received a glancing blow, and his arm was torn off. Still, the man stayed at his post and directed fire, which came to an end soon enough as his damaged ship went under. The destroyer Grecale was the next victim, but her captain had the presence of mind to stop his forward progress, which was only bringing him closer to the enemy ships. It was this stoppage that saved his ship, which would later be towed back home by the larger destroyer Oriani. And now, in the middle of this intense fight, it's time for miscommunications on the Italian side. However, it was this mistake that would go on to save many British lives. The Italian destroyer Euro was able to get within 2,200 yards, or 2,000 meters, of the British formation. In truth, the Euro thought she was sailing closer to two of her sister destroyers, but as those British ships were currently engaged, they did not fire on the approaching Euro, hence the Euro's mistake. It's worth noting that the Euro was ready with a spread of six torpedoes. During all this, the flagship Mastrale had been trying to signal all the other Axis ships to get on her far side, away from the attackers, but her wireless mast had already been hit, hence the signal was very weak. It was at this moment that the Euro realized she was near the enemy and had a great shot lined up. This battle was about to turn in favor 
of the Axis. But that's when the flagship's barely audible message came through, get behind me. Thus, the Euros captain, Kigala, belayed the order to fire the torpedoes and ran behind the flagship. Yet, as the Euro moved away, the British realized she was not one of theirs, so opened fire. Six shells hit the Euro, but as she was so close to the British ships, the shells simply passed through her without exploding, though the damage did kill 20 Italian crewmen. By now, some of the other, further away escorts were coming on the scene. The British ships moved back so the light from the burning ships would not give away their positions. To counter this, the Trento fired star shells into the air. The enemy ships were spotted about 8,700 yards away. Thus, when the Triesta and Trento opened fire, no damage was done to the British ships. The four British ships, in fact, didn't even bother with evasive action. They were simply too far away. The Italian destroyers, Mastrale and Euro, had moved away from the fighting. They had gathered a few more escorts to them and again approached the British. This resulted in a short, sharp clash, as the Italians fired, saw that nothing happened to the enemy ships, who then fired back. To this, the Italians turned around once again. One Italian ship managed to hit a British ship with its 200mm rounds, which made for a great photo op when they got back into port. With this being the situation, Force K got to work, finishing off the remaining merchantmen. The Italian destroyers continued to fire at the enemy, but from far away. By 1.40 a.m., the battle, such as it was, was over. Seeing that every enemy supply ship was either sunk or burning, Force K turned for Malta and poured on the speed. Around 2.07 a.m., the Italians, who were following the British ships, fired on those retreating. The British reported back that they were unaware that anything like that was happening. Force K pulled into Grand Harbor at 1 p.m., November 9th. Behind them, they had left just under 40,000 tons of Axis shipping that was now at the bottom of the sea. Adding insult to injury, the destroyer Lebeccio was damaged by the sub HMS Upholder, as the former had been searching for survivors, of which there were now hundreds in the water. Wanks and his crew were on the job. As they say, all is fair in love and war. If one may be Trey Gauche for a second, when Admiral Cunningham heard about the annihilation of the convoy, he wrote, the result was a holocaust for the Italians. In time, this battle would be remembered as the Saturday night club run, and it would be repeated that same month. It will come as no surprise that the morale of the Italian Navy hit a new low. Simply their communication, organization, and nighttime fighting tactics were far behind their enemy. Until those changed, the results would not. The day after the battle, Rommel sent a message to Berlin saying that shipments from Italy had been suspended for now. Also, of the 60,000 troops that were to land in Benghazi, only 8,093 arrived. Berlin replied with, yeah, we know, we're working on it. For now, go easy on the offensives. To this, 
Rommel did the exact opposite, which brought him victories and fame until his shells and fuel began to run out. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.